You are listening to the Venture Scale SaaS Operator, the podcast where we interview founders who are actually in the trenches. We talk about the transparent journey of how they built their SaaS companies, how they grow them, and what they would do differently if they would do it all over. Hey folks, with us today, Eric Byers, founder of Adolus. Super happy to have you. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Usually I ask what the things your product solves, but I think it's very connected to the name. So I would love to make it like a double question. Why the name and what problem is your product solving for its customers? Yeah. Um, so the name um, is, uh, is based on ancient Greek. It's Adolus uh, was the Greek, um, maybe you call him a demigod of fakes. He was the guy who built um, such realistic statues of the uh, goddesses that people would come and pray to them and thinking they were praying to the real goddess. He eventually uh, got his dues in the end. But um, so he was the creator of fakes and A is negation in ancient Greek. Um, so really the name of the company is saying no fakes no or no fake gods. Um, and that's the purpose of the company is trying to detect um, the uh, ingredients in software and trying to find out where there's um, basically um, counterfeit, fake, bad uh, components in software. They could be something gets injected in by a malicious actor, or it could be something that was just badly designed and uh, creates a huge vulnerability. And then the, who's the typical customer for that? So the typical customer will be um, a large enterprise, you know, somebody like Caterpillar or somebody... Uh, somebody who um, has a lot of software that they're purchasing and being used in mission-critical applications. It could be a critical IT application. Most often, it's a um, software used in a critical application in what we call operational technology or OT, so actually running something on the plant floor. Um, and obviously, uh, it's very, very risky if there is bad software wrappered up and contained inside that um, in, inside of that software package you bought from a legitimate customer. And, and I got interested in this because of um, foreign attacks on European companies, actually, interestingly enough, where um, probably Russian-driven state actors were injecting malware into the software that um, several European um, develop uh, software supply companies were actually selling to companies in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, so, you know, customers would come along uh, running a pharmaceutical yeah. company and say, I need to get this software, for example, software for VPNs on plant floors. They download it from their trusted vendor, but what they didn't realize is they were downloading a Trojan horse. Interesting. That's, that's very unique. And then basically... How, I mean, it's, as you said, big enterprise customers, and I guess everything that touches security, especially like cybersecurity, which is like for most people in the industrial space, something like hard to, to, to wrap their head around often. How, is, how does the buying cycle for something like that look? Because I imagine it's like very long buying cycles and a lot of, lot of like educational, um, basically back and forth. Like how, how did that, does this go? Yeah, the buying cycle is long, it's slow, and it's painful. And, and, you know, these are big ships and they don't turn quickly. They don't make decisions. We're kind of lucky right now because um, there's a lot of regulatory pressure happening where governments, for example, the U.S. government, um, 
um, the EU are all starting to say, hey, if you're running something mission critical like a power plant, you've got to know what software you bought and not just what was on the wrapper, what's inside it. So we're seeing um, a lot of pressure in the last six to eight months uh, for companies to make up their minds. So whereas two years ago, the buy cycle was probably a year long, we're seeing at least shrink down to maybe six months. Um, it's not fast, but it's, um, yeah, that's, yeah. so it is a slow buy cycle. Yeah. But I mean, six months for that level of enterprise, it sounds quite fast, to be honest. And then- Yeah, I mean, that's, and again, that's sort of because of those tailwinds, because they're being told they have to have something in place. So that sort of speeds big organizations up. The good news with the long buy cycle is that it also means there's a lot of stickiness. Um, you know, if, if it, if you're running a security department in a large enterprise and it took you a year or you know something to be able to get all the approvals to buy this last package, you're not going to switch and do it all over again. So um, you have really good customer loyalty out. Yeah, and we I always try to make the the podcast like as actionable as possible. So how is your sales team structured? Like how how basically how did you build the team to fulfill on on that, because I must imagine that the people selling need to have like a deep level of expertise and can't just be like random salespeople off the street trying to to to, to educate the buyer. How did you construct the, the team? Like, how do you manage it from like the CEO and founder perspective? Yeah, so um, we've tried a number of different experiments actually, and we've tried different sales teams. Right now, we have a pretty um, small light team, just a couple of people focused on sales. Um, and they're really um, uh, all members of like the executive team, um, you know, pretty senior people. Um, <clears throat> and then a lot of support out of engineering. Um, so, for example, sales teams generally don't do the demos. Um, they'll bring in somebody from engineering, but then they'll manage the whole process. A um, lot of focus on trying to generate inbound calls, um, customers that are excited about or have the pain and want a, a solution. Um, so not too much sort of outbound cold calling. Then how, like on the tactical level, how do you generate that inbound? Because it is, is it like the typical marketing playbook with like content or, or how do you actually build inbound in such an industry? Um, so in this, uh, in, in the uh, heavy industry, um, th there's really kind of two ways you go about it. Um, one of them is, Uh, through conferences and through sort of educational processes. So I go to a lot of conferences and speak. Um, you know, uh, before COVID, I was uh, doing uh, 20 to 30 conferences a year. Um, That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. And those were all, all speaking engagements um, all over the world. Um, I was, you know, really helping the airline industry. That's changed a little bit. Um, there's more of the webinar driven conferences now, but still, I'll probably do at least uh, 10 conferences this year. Um, and the idea is to really help educate the customers and really, so that's one way so that you build up this sort of market awareness, um, A, that there's a need and B, that you can be a solution. And then the second thing is um, trying to make your website very, very educational. So we publish a lot of white papers. We have a lot of sort of um, tutorials, things that are going to bring the customer in when they they know that they're looking for something like 
um, a software bill of material solution or SBOMS it's called. Um, so that we're a site that you would go to, to go look for general information. And while they're there, maybe they'll say, yeah, I'd really like a demo. And so, uh, you know, it's a lot of that kind of, uh, here's a white paper. And by the way, click here for a demo. If you need to hire the right developers and ship fast, then React Squad is for you. A boutique agency that specializes in React and only works with fast growth startups. Get a 14-day risk-free trial and a transparent price of $95 per hour. Visit reactsquad.io to learn more. Interesting. And then on the conferences, is there a very limited amount in those industries? So it's not hard for you to choose, okay, I go to those 10 because there's only like 12 a year. Or how? Would, or is it like the opposite where it's like hundreds of conferences and you need like a very strict filter to find out which are like the high ROI conferences to yeah, go to? You need a strict filter. Um, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, no, there was very, very few conferences that were focused. Um, today, um, industrial um, OT uh, cybersecurity conferences are uh, sprouted up like mushrooms in a rainstorm. Um, they're everywhere. Um, so now you have to focus and see, okay, which ones will actually have people who would be looking for this sort of technology? Um, so, And there's a few obvious ones that are good ROI. They've been good ROI all the way along. Um, and then there's a whole bunch that are, uh, it's less clear. So it's always sort of filtering and we're always watching how many leads do we get to, from this event? How many leads did we get last year? Of course, COVID has thrown that whole calculation into a bit of a, a mess. Conferences that used to be absolutely phenomenal for getting leads have, have died out and other conferences that never, never really seem to uh, be that strong um, are really taking off. Um, so it's been sort of, it sort of upset the, the apple cart a little bit. Uh, the other thing that's interesting is that we're still waiting for conferences specifically on the software supply chain problem. And so far, so right now we go to cybersecurity conferences, not software supply chain conferences. Um, and we try and focus on those cybersecurity conferences that have a software supply chain track in them or a focus. Interesting, interesting. And then do you, is it very easy to measure meaning, okay, I go to a conference on Tuesday, I have my talk at like 5 p.m. and then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, the leads start to roll in. So is it very easy to connect the dots or is it quite hard if you, if I can imagine if you go to that many conferences, it's like every other week. So how hard is it for you to actually find out what, which conference was high ROI and which maybe you wouldn't go to again the next year? We're not dealing with big numbers here. So no, it's not that hard. You know, you... You can just ask, you know, in your first meeting, and yeah. hey, how did you hear yeah. about us? And so we yeah. tend to track that in our CRM. Where did you first hear about us? And um, sometimes it's it's multiple conferences that matter. So you want to track, well, I first heard about you here, but, you know, uh, when I saw you uh, talk about X at this last conference, uh, I decided I needed to talk to you. So you're, you're looking at both sort of initial and then what's driving sales activities. Yeah. So I guess that's like the good part about being more enterprise driven and having like the direct contact because where my mind came from is that like in the typical PLG bottom up sales world, it's like a big discussion. Okay, how do you actually get to know like which top of funnel is working? Because yeah, you don't have the people on the phone or on a call and can just, just ask them basically. Um, 
And then quickly, how, bi- how big is your team? Like, what's like the size of the company right now, either in terms of revenue or like just em- employees or, or some other number that you're open to share? Uh, we're about 28 people on staff, I think. 28, 29, it sort of shifts and changes. Most are, uh, most are on the technical team. I think about 20 are on the technical team. So those are software developers, data scientists, uh, QA specialists, people like that. Um, and But they sort of... Uh, some of them sort of deal, uh, have a double role. They actually have a bit of a, a well, they sales support role where they're going to be in direct contact with the customer. They're going to be supporting the sales guys or the sales team. They're responsible for customer success. So, so um, and, and we do that for two reasons. One, I don't want to disconnect between what engineering is doing and what the customers want. So, we try and throw the engineers uh, as much as possible in the middle of the sales process, or at least some of the engineers, doesn't have to be them all, uh, some of the developers. Um, and at the same time, uh, we really want them to be like directly hearing the voice of the customer. You know, I like this, I don't like that, you know, and so the, that can influence uh, where we go. We want to be, you know, we're a small company among whales, so we want to be pretty mobile and when, a, when one or two customers saying, you know, I really don't like that screen, you want to be on top of that. That, that makes a ton of sense. And then you, you initially got the company off the ground because I also like, uh, and you took funding. Are you still like on the venture high growth track or how do you see using the using VC money to, to grow faster right now, especially in the economic uh, like environment we, we're in right now? Yeah, so we are actually in the middle of doing an A round raise right now. Terrible timing, but um, it's, <laughs> it's just the way the cookie crumbled, um, just the yeah. way the market evolved. Um, in some respects, it's actually been a bit of a blessing. It's really made us focus and be very, very diligent about how we spend every dollar. You know, uh, a year ago, you could get, you could feel like you were swimming in money. Um, and I watched companies burn cash like it was no tomorrow. We were lucky in that respect. We had pretty, um, you know, very tight fiscal uh, management. Um, so, yeah, right now we're in the middle of a round. Uh, we actually have a term sheet that showed up a little while ago. And so we're looking at uh, a raise. But um, we're uh, going to use that uh, one uh, for... Um, really sort of moving the platform to the next generation. Um, there is, uh, you know, we've learned a thing or two over the last five years and the market, what the market wants uh, is, is morphing and changing. So for example, we had no idea the size of software files back five years ago that we'd be looking at today. You know, we figured that the platform would have to deal with um, files up to five gigabytes. Uh, and, you know, I thought that's as big a software package. Now we've had people throw, you know, uh, files that are a hundred gigabytes that expand out to a terabyte and you've got to be able to analyze that. So, you know, you, you start to have some big, big data, data science problems, um, to deal with. So we really want to spend um, part of our funding on really optimizing that and making the system work very efficiently at scale. Um, it's really a growing uh, scaling problem. And then the other thing is we want to continue to grow our sales uh, process, have more people on the inside, uh, sales taking those calls, more people doing the demos, things like that. I mean, that's, 
I, I think it's very interesting how you how the company is structured, meaning that it's like a heavy heavy on engineering, but also the engineers not being like in their little dungeon in the corner, just just coding away, but very integrated into into the sales. You're quite seasoned compared to like the typical twenty something old founder. You you one sees on like Twitter or LinkedIn or in whatever magazine people read nowadays online. What's something that you learned in maybe even the last five to ten years of of working, where you thought, damn, if I only knew that like twenty years earlier. I mean, sure, technologies changes how people buy chains, but there are like some things around like management. There's just like habits of like being a high performer that like usually don't change so what's what's something uh, that comes to mind oh there's a couple of things that i've learned um first of all uh no matter how long you think it's going to take it's going to take longer and you're going to spend more money um and some of the things you just don't budget for are you know that they become critical so right now we're in the middle of a iso 27001 uh certification process you know, I thought we could stall that for a few years, but no, we needed to move forward. Those are, you know, that's just wasn't something that was normally on my budget. I mean, they're expensive. Um, so, you know, there's always these little surprises that come along that so have some buffer in your budget for um, requirements that you didn't see coming when you were starting up. Uh, and it's interesting. I also um, act as a judge and mentor for startups. Um and that's one of the things I see in business plans. I see them sort of really only planning for the cost that you have when you have five people. Well, when you have when you have twenty five people, you need an HR manager. You need HR processes, for example. You need you know um, your accounting and finance can't be done on a spreadsheet anymore. So you start to get costs that you don't see coming. So that's one of the first things. Is really. Um, budgeting for your company to grow, not for what it's like today times 10, but what are your new costs going to be? And you're going to get some economy of scale, but you're also going to have some surprises. And then the second thing I think um, that I've learned over the last 40 years is how important it is to um, build the team and have people on the team that you know, feel like they've got um, a goal, that they're important, that they're cared about. Um, you know, that to me, like I, the team I have here is amazing. Um, and they're, they're self-operating. I can, I provide guidance. I don't, I don't have to manage them day to day. I say, here's the direction we're going. Here's what's, you know, and then to just let them go. Um, and I think when I was younger in my first startup, I was far too, doing far too much uh, micromanagement. Um, now they may still say I micromanage too much, but <laughs> I think I've learned to uh, do less micromanaging and worrying less about uh, the small stuff and really trying to uh, win the war, not the battle. Um, so there's a lot of things that, you know, things go wrong every day. People make mistakes. Um, letting those sort of roll off me and go, oh, okay, that was a learning experience, eh? Let's, let's analyze why that are wrong and then just move on. Um, and that ability to sort of let things roll off my back is definitely something that's uh, helped over in, in this startup. I think that's a lovely point to wrap up. Eric, thanks a ton for coming on and, and share everything uh, so openly. 
Well, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure. And, you know, uh, good luck. And I wish good luck to all the people out there trying to run a SaaS company in this rather, uh, shall we say, interesting time. If you like this episode, then you'll love the SaaS Operator, a weekly newsletter brought to you by Early Node with actionable insights from SaaS experts in the industry delivered right to your inbox every Tuesday for free. Visit earlynode.com to subscribe.